At a time where private equity firms are facing a large uphill battle for fundraising, Secondaries is proving to be a rare bright spot in private markets. As detailed in this year's SI50 ranking, published by Secondaries Investor and Private Equity International. Welcome to Spotlight and our ongoing mini-series where Secondaries Investor dives into the latest developments in the Secondaries market. I'm Madeline Farman, a senior reporter with Secondaries Investor. I'm joined by Verdon Perry, global head of Blackstone Strategic Partners. The firm's secondaries unit has topped this year's ranking, raising $51.3 billion over the last five years. If you want to hear from secondaries experts in person, why not head along to PEI Group's Nexus Conference held on March 6-8 in Orlando, Florida. The event includes dedicated tracks aligned to our private markets publications, including Secondaries Investor. Head to peievents.com to find out more. Strategic partners made waves earlier this year, raking in a record-breaking $25 billion for its latest fundraising haul, including its flagship vehicle. I asked Vern whether he ever anticipated Secondary's vehicles would get to that size when he started off in the industry. I think the best way to answer your question is to talk about what we thought secondary volume would be. So our business was founded in 2000. And that year, there was roughly 1.5 billion of secondary volume globally. And I remember distinctly two years later saying, if this market can get to be 10 billion or more, wow, wouldn't that be amazing? It's interesting. Uh, this market surpassed 10 billion of global secondary volume in 2006. This year, we expect total secondary volume to be somewhere between 120 and 130 billion. So I answer your question in a very different way, but I think the best way to answer it is, what did people think the total market would be? Like the total size of the secondary market, I think it's far surpassed everyone's wildest dreams. I don't think 23 years ago when we founded this business, we think that total volume would be over 100 billion. So I think one, we're thrilled beyond belief that the volume is what it is. The market's grown so astronomically. But I think what is the bigger story is that I think the best days are ahead for the secondaries market. When you look forward, the growth potential for this market is enormous. Think about it for one second. The average turnover rate in our market is about 1%. That's tiny. That number could be three, four, five, up to double digits. But right now it's 1%. So the overall pie is growing and the overall slice that's making its way to the secondary market we expect to grow significantly from 1%. Yeah, wonderful, Vern. And I do want to get on to some slightly more personal questions and as well ask you to take out your crystal ball towards the end. But maybe let's start with some market-specific questions for you. So what is driving secondary's deal flow currently? Well, I would say it's a couple things. First, when you think about investors committing to private equity funds over the last five years, they've done quite well. And so their allocations increased, particularly over the last three years. And so what happens when you see a pullback in the market or a dislocation period, like we're seeing in 2022 and even now, LPs will find themselves over-allocated to private equity. So many large and small investors in private equity funds are now over-allocated to the asset class. And so they're trying to generate liquidity and they're trying to get their allocations back in line with their targets. For example, there may be a group out there who has a target of 10% to private equity. And because of the pullback in the market, the public markets, they now find themselves at 15%. We call that the denominator effect. 
But what's exacerbating that issue is private equity has performed so well over the last five years, really the last 10 years, but in particular the last five years, they're experiencing something in combination with the denominator effect that is called the numerator effect. And that's private equity performance. The value of their holdings has grown. And so they may find themselves at a 17% allocation versus their 10% target. One of the ways to relieve that overallocation is to sell in the secondary market. Another primary reason for sellers right now is active portfolio management. Think of a large institutional investor invested in hundreds of names, private equity funds, and they have a team of three or four people. They'll look and say, due to the administrative and monitoring burden required to cover all of these funds and appropriately report to our board and our constituents, we want to sell some of the older names to make life a little bit easier. We'll sell those names, free up cash to recommit or to commit to names that they already trust and like, GPs that are best in class. So those are the two primary reasons. But over the life of this segment, this sector, you've seen a number of reasons, whether it's regulatory, distressed, change in organizational personnel, i.e. a change of CIO. One of the things I would note, the vast majority of sellers are not selling due to distress. It's a misperception. You assume, or many people assume in the market, that if someone's selling, they're distressed or they need cash, something's wrong. That's absolutely not true. Less than 5% of all sellers over the last five years, based on our information, are selling due to distress. Absolutely. And so obviously, I don't think there's any shortage of supply at the moment in the secondaries market. You are the you know, steward of this record-breaking fund that you have raised. I'd be curious to know what you're looking for in terms of an LP-led transaction that you're willing to partake in, as well as a GP-led transaction currently. So I'll start on the LP-led side. The first thing we're looking for is a diversified portfolio where we have a competitive advantage. And that competitive advantage could be our relationship with the seller, the intermediary, or it could be the time required to understand that portfolio. I mean, we're currently invested in over 5,500 unique private equity funds across over 1,600 different GPs. And so we have lots of information and knowledge is power. That information is very powerful. That, that amount of data, in our opinion, is unparalleled. And so when there's a large footprint meaning large number of funds in an LP-led transaction, we believe we have an advantage. But when you pierce down into those funds in that portfolio, we're looking for high quality. We have a bias toward high quality. We're looking for a portfolio that's 75 to 90% funded, six to 10 years old. Why are we looking for that? We want to assess and evaluate the assets from the bottom up. We don't want to assume blind pool risk, meaning there's lots of unfunded. We don't know where that will be invested. We're investors, so we want to assess assets that are in the ground that we can touch and feel and understand. And so we're looking for funds that are highly funded and, again, at least six years old. The reason for that is those underlying assets and funds that are six years old have had a chance to age. And so given that tenure, we can look at it and look at specific risks. And what we found is in the earlier life of an investment, it tends to be the most risky. New ownership new leverage, new business plan, those companies and those assets tend to thrive or crumble and it becomes painfully evident within the first four years if it's not going to make it. And so if it's not going to make it, we can price that in or just avoid those altogether. Again, we have a bias toward high quality. So we want to buy into assets that are identified, that are older, that have de-risked, de-levered. 
that are closer to ultimate exit. And then finally, we're looking for companies that have a defensible market position. They have a competitive moat. They're growing top line, strong EBITDA margins, minimal CapEx requirement, strong management, and multiple exit routes. I think when you look at the secondary market, there's a lot of focus spent on how people invest and what they buy. But I think there's a second part of that equation. How do they sell? We spend a lot of our time and our due diligence efforts on how will these companies be sold? Will it be to a trade buyer, i.e. a competitor? Will it be to a financial buyer? Will it be an IPO? So all of those things come into our analysis in deciding whether we pursue an LP-led transaction. On the GP-led side of the market, when you think about that, again, we have a bias toward high quality. We're looking for really high quality GPs that want to hold their best quality assets longer, but we're looking for GPs who are aligned. They have skin in the game in the form of continued equity in that investment. Again, same story as the LP-led side. Companies that have a defensible market position, a competitive moat, the ability to truly add value, to enhance revenue streams, and then something that's in demand, a high quality business that's one or two in its market that other people want. Why does that matter? Because when it's time to sell, you want it to be liquid. You want there to be high demand for that particular asset that bodes well for your ultimate exit. How much dry powder is out there? versus the amount of opportunities that the secondaries market could potentially transact on? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think it speaks uh, more broadly about the level of competition in this segment of the private equity industry. So as I mentioned, we expect somewhere between 120 to 130 billion of secondary volume globally this year. Depending on who you speak to, there's roughly 200 to 225 billion of dry powder to pursue secondary opportunities. So with that said, there's somewhere between one and a half to two years of overhang. Some would argue as, as low as one year. So this market is not unlike other markets. Pricing is driven by supply demand. There's lots of supply. Demand is relatively muted. There's probably at the most 225 billion of dry powder or unfunded commitments to pursue secondaries opportunities. And if you look at that relative to, let's say, 125 billion of secondary market volume, you're talking about, you know, upwards of two years max of dry powder relative to supply. I think if you look at the traditional private equity market, the primary market, that number is somewhere between four to five years. The secondary market is two years or less. I'm sure every LP and GP would love to secure par pricing currently, but in many cases, that's not realistic. What approach are you taking to pricing currently and how are you working to manage expectations? Well, I think our current approach to pricing is the same today as it was in 2000. It's characterized by patience and discipline. Those two things win the day. And what I mean by that is we don't chase deals. We don't compromise on price. We don't compromise on quality. So we're looking for deals at a fair price. We have what we're looking for in mind when we're pursuing a deal. And if we think a GP is not aligned, if we think a portfolio is subject to the market, i.e. it's highly public and it's subject to the whims of the public markets, there's not a lot of value upside in the portfolio, or a seller's price expectations aren't reasonable in our opinion, we'll give a respectful no very early. And so certainly sellers will look for par. And if you think back to Q1 of 2022, there were some very large transactions that came to market where sellers were looking for par or very low single digit discounts. And it doesn't mean those deals are bad. 
It doesn't mean those ultimate buyers aren't going to do well. But for what we're looking for, that was not the right time. And that was not the right price, especially considering that distributions dropped significantly in 2022 versus 2021. And so I would say distributions were probably down 40 to 50% in 2022 versus 2021. That has to be part of your pricing. That has to be part of your algebra when you're coming up with your discount or your par or premium price. And so for us, we're going to be patient. We're going to be disciplined. We're going to stick to our knitting, the things we've been doing for 23 years. And so nothing's changed. I know the market's changed, but we have not changed our approach to the market. Do you anticipate further specialization in the secondaries industry, whether that's by asset class or strategy? And what will that mean for the secondaries market more broadly, whether that be from a return perspective, an LP interest perspective, or from a new entrant perspective? To answer your question, I think the best way to do that is to go back in time. So again, the year we were founded in 2000, most secondary buyers were focused on private equity secondaries including LBO, some venture and growth equity. That's where the primary focus of secondary buyers was. In 2003, 2004, secondary buyers started to look at real estate secondaries. And then in 2013, 14, secondary buyers entered the infrastructure secondary space. Not long thereafter, credit secondaries uh, emerged as a strategy. So when you think about this, I would expect there to be continued specialization in secondary funds not unlike primary funds. When you think about primary funds, there's absolute increase in specialization, whether they're healthcare funds, software funds, technology at large. I would expect secondary funds to follow suit. What the next step in that is, is unclear, but I would say one of the most recent trends in the secondary market is this focus on GP-led secondaries. I think there is an enormous opportunity there. I think if you were to survey every GP out there, I would guess, and this is just a guess, that 95% would say, yes, I sold something in the last five years. I wish I had not sold. I wish I had held on. I wish there was a way for me to hold on to that to extract more value for my LPs and for our business. And so I think the GP-led side is the most recent specialization that will grow, in my opinion, tremendously over the next five to 10 years. But, you know, going out in the future, it's unclear, but I would expect more specialization. Obviously, some of Blackstone's large listed peers have launched secondary strategies in recent years. We're also seeing smaller buyout shops launch GP-led secondary strategies. Many of them point to Blackstone strategic partners as being a trailblazer in the ways of successfully integrating a secondary strategies into a larger buyout shop. What's your advice for those firms that have recently launched or are thinking about launching secondary strategy? Well, it's very nice that others are pointing to Blackstone's acquisition of strategic partners as sort of a, a case study in what's possible. And I'm proud to say that Blackstone acquired us 10 years ago. We celebrated our 10th year anniversary here at Blackstone on August 2nd. So Blackstone was ahead of the curve without a doubt with respect to the secondary market opportunity. And you're right, over recent years, there are a lot of large asset managers that have entered the space via acquisitions. I would say the advice I would have for those groups, it all comes down to culture and fit. I mean, certainly there are smart people in all of our competitors in this industry, people with ambition and innovation and creativity. But when you're acquiring a, a secondaries business, the question you have to ask, is it a shared culture? Will this be a cultural fit? Are there shared values? That will ultimately drive the success of that acquisition or failure of that acquisition. So 
the advice I would have for the group buying the secondary group, as well as the secondary group itself, make sure that you have a shared culture and shared values. We recently wrote a Friday letter examining or opining on what's stopping secondaries from reaching a golden age. For anyone listening, you can find the full article on secondariesinvestor.com. But what's your take, Kevin? Are we in a golden age from your perspective or what will it take for secondaries to reach a golden age? I'll start by simply answering your question. No, we're not in a golden age of secondaries. We're not there yet. We're all very happy and proud of the growth in the secondary market over the last 23 years. But again, I think the best days are ahead of us for the secondary market. So when you think about 1.5 billion total secondary market volume in 2000 versus what is expected to be 120 to 130 billion this year, tremendous growth, I would argue exponential growth. But I think, again, the best days are ahead of us because of a number of factors. One, when you look at the amount of primary dollars committed to private equity funds since 2009, which I would argue is the last large downturn, that number has increased fourfold. When you look at the number of active institutional investors committing to private equity funds since 2009, the increase is sixfold. If you look at the growth in the secondary market during that same period of time, it's 11fold. So yes, lots of growth, but that setup of primary dollars being committed to private equity funds, as well as the new entrants in terms of active institutional investors, are setting the secondary market up for exponential growth going forward. Secondly, when you look at the turnover rate, it's only 1%. Depending on who you speak to, there's somewhere between 11 and 12 trillion of value remaining in private equity funds today. Only 1% of that trades on the secondary market. If that were to simply go to 2% or 3% or 5%, which is not unreasonable, the secondary market will grow significantly. But what's being lost here is that 11 to 12 trillion is expected to grow to 15 trillion by the year end 2025. So said another way, the pie is growing and the slice that the secondary market makes up will grow as well, in my opinion. And so when you think about where we stand today, 120 billion a year in volume sounds large in context of where we came from. But I think when you look 10 years from now, that 120 billion will feel quite small. So I think when you look at the future opportunity in this market, it's enormous. So no, we're not in a golden age yet. It's on its way. When it will be here, when we will arrive, it's unclear, but we will get there. We're not there today. And I think everyone should be encouraged and excited about that opportunity. Well, if you could give me a phone call when that happens, Vern, so I can uh, get get a head start on the editorial that I'll have to write at that stage on the fact that we are in a golden age, that'd be much appreciated. Will do. I'll give you a call as soon as it happens. Perfect. Let's touch now on a couple of personal questions, Vern. Can you walk me through the best day that you've had in the office across your career? Well, I've had so many amazing days characterized by happiness for the team, team success, when you think about Blackstone and when you think about strategic partners, you know, we're characterized by excellence, integrity, collaboration, teamwork, and, you know, innovation. And so when I look back, my best days have always been when I get to see the success of team members who started here as summer analysts or analysts. It's not the days where I've achieved some personal success, but when I watch others achieve personal success, I mean, we've seen each other grow. I mean, I grew up here. I mean, this was my first job out of Harvard Business School. Never had another job. 
I helped to build this team. The founder, Stephen Can, gave me a shot, mentored me, sponsored me, developed me, protected me, uh, gave me a chance when many others would not. And so I try and repay that and pay that forward by giving others the same shot he gave me. And so when I see someone like that be promoted to managing director or partner, I just sit back like a proud father almost, looking at a child who's grown up and gone off to college on a full scholarship. Literally, that's how it feels. And so I've experienced that so many times and it happens almost every year because there's a new class of promotes. But when you see someone achieve a promotion or some personal success or execute a deal that is large and we believe will be successful and they did it on their own, they sourced it, they led it, they managed all sorts of resources, both internally and externally, to come to a successful conclusion of a transaction. Those tend to be my happier days. That's how I would define my happy days here at Strategic Partners. Fantastic. And we've got to mix the good with the bad, right, Vern? Um, can you walk me through one of the toughest days for you since you've joined Blackstone? Yeah, what I would say is one of the toughest days ever on the job. And it, this is personal, but I remember it would have been late October 2010. I'm at the office. I get a call on my cell phone. It's my cousin saying, you should come home your sister received some really bad news today. She doesn't have much time left. So at the time she was battling uh, stage four uterine cancer. And we thought that she could fight it and she was going through treatment, both chemo and radiation. And I, I received a call you don't want to receive. And I happened to be at work and I was a first year managing director and I want to be ambitious and work hard and be present. And I get this call and I sat there, I got off the phone, I sat there in silence for about 10 minutes and I'll never forget it. I walked into Stephen Kahn's office, who was the global head at the time, and I said, Stephen, my sister's dying. I have to go home. And I'll never forget it. He just put his hand up and said, go. Go be with your family. You only get to do this once. There are no redos. Go home. Be with your family. I'll never forget that. And what I would tell you is, while that was the saddest moment, the worst day of my professional career, because it's where I received that news. But in many ways, I'm grateful because this team, this team rallied around me. They said, basically, every I got emails. They were short. We have your back. Focus on your family. Don't worry about anything here. Be mentally present at home. And I'll never forget that. And what I would tell your listeners, while it was a terrible day, terrible day, I w that's not the news you want to receive anywhere, much less at the office. And so, you know, you think about that, but... What came out of that, the silver lining is, you look at a team that has your back in the good days and the bad days. They're first in line to celebrate. They're first in line to console when something's wrong. And so we all have a story to tell. We've all been through something. We've all suffered tragedy and loss and disappointment. We've all been hurt in some way, shape, or form. But what I would tell your listeners, if you're somewhere and you're in a team that has your back, consider yourself blessed. You're beyond lucky. Lucky is an understatement. You're blessed. I'm blessed. I have that team here. And the second point I would make, when someone has your back and your organization has your back and this firm, Blackstone, has your back like that, what does that do for loyalty? What does that do to inspire loyalty and retention and trust? It can't be replaced in any way, shape or form. And it was an amazing experience, albeit sad, but the outcome was something that uh, I wouldn't have uh, done differently. I was there. I was holding my sister's hand when she breathed her last breath on December 6, 2010. And I can't thank this firm or my colleagues enough for 
having my back and being there for me while I was there for my sister. And so that's the answer to your question. It's quite personal, but I thought it was worth sharing with you all because I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to what I just shared. I'm so sorry to hear that, Vern. I'm sure your sister's incredibly proud of you. And the feelings mutual. I'm very proud of her. She was the best big sister I could have had. She lived a great life uh, while it was short. While she lived, she lived, if you understand what I'm saying. Very much so. You're going to elicit some tears on this podcast. So thank you so much for sharing that. You've mentioned already the mentorship that you have received. Can you talk me a little bit more? Who were your mentors in the secondaries market, whether they be in Blackstone or outside of Blackstone? And how important were they to you? Yeah, I love that question. I, I was fortunate and am fortunate to have so many mentors, some of whom are retired, i.e. Stephen Can, who I would put at the top of that list. He was the founder of Strategic Partners. He gave me a shot and helped me get to where I am. And I owe him a lot. But if you look across this industry, there are other mentors. Another is Ed Lewis, who has been at Cigna Insurance for 40 years. He's in the private equity group. He's been an LP since our fund two. So I've known Ed Lewis. He's been a mentor really that whole time, over 20 years. And so when you think about categories of mentors, some can be coworkers, some can be investors. The next one is interesting. He's a competitor. So Frank Borges from Aries Secondaries Fund, formerly Landmark, has been a mentor. And so mentors are interesting. They pop up in some of the more interesting places. Who would think that one of my mentors would be at a competitor? But, you know, just speaking more broadly and thinking about the firm, I mean, Tony James, who was president and COO of Blackstone before John Gray, he was a mentor. You know, I owe him a lot. John Gray, the current president and COO of Blackstone, is a mentor and a sponsor. Steve Schwarzman really is a mentor to everyone here. I mean, he's a guiding force. He inspires. He motivates. He's amazing. So I have gained so much from being in the presence of these individuals over the years, both professionally and personally. But what I would share with you, mentors are good. Sponsors are great. So Stephen Can and John Gray and Tony James and Steve Schwarzman, they've not just been mentors, they've been sponsors. They've given me a shot. They've spoken on my behalf in rooms I was not in at the time. They put their name on the line for me. They vouched for me. They took a chance on me, real risk on me. And so Mentors are phenomenal. They're good. But I, I would argue that sponsors are even better. Those individuals have been both mentors and sponsors. And I, I just wanted to relay that to your audience so that they know the difference and the impact those two groups of people can have on one's career and one's life. And I'm really interested to hear your answer to this question as well. What piece of advice would you give to someone starting their career today in the secondaries market? I would give a couple pieces of advice. First and foremost, learn as much as possible. Be a sponge. Be intellectually curious. If you don't understand a term, ask someone. But before you even do that, try and figure out what it is on your own. Be resourceful. Learn the esoteric aspects of what it means to be a secondary buyer. You can certainly go on Google and go online and search for secondaries buyers or the secondary market. You'll learn a lot. But you know, rely on the people above you, the people that have more experience. Ask them questions, make them teach you this industry, but be a sponge, learn as much as possible. Second, don't think anyone is smarter than you. There's a lot of assets that we have to evaluate. There are a lot of funds to get to know, a lot of individuals to get to know. 
Don't assume someone's smarter than you. The assumption is that they're more experienced than you. Just because they know more than you about the secondary market doesn't mean they're smarter. It just means they have more reps, they're more experienced. Next, don't assume the party's over. 130 billion, 120 billion in volume this year versus 1.5 billion in 2000. It's easy to assume the growth is over, the party's over. I'm just gonna be a cog in a wheel. It's untrue. I think the greatest potential for growth is ahead of us. And so if you're brand new in August, September, in the secondary market, you should come into this market assuming that you're going to run one of these businesses one day. You're going to add to the growth. You're going to add to the opportunity to grow this business, not just financially, but from a perspective of awareness. I mean, if you go back to 2000, very few people knew what the secondary market was. It started to come on the mainstream, maybe 2009, 2010, with the global financial crisis. But even today, still a lot of people are confused or have misperceptions about the secondary market. If you're brand new to this industry, it's now partly your job to help educate, to wave the flag and be an ambassador on behalf of the secondary market to educate both LPs and GPs on what it is that we do, you know, what it is that we do for a living. And finally, even though you're young, you have an opportunity to enhance the culture of your group and your organizations. Don't assume it's the leader's job to make sure that the culture is what it should be or to make sure you have a robust, successful and winning culture. It's now your job. You're part of the team. Add to it. If you see something wrong, say something. If you see something that can be improved, raise your hand and volunteer to help fix it or improve it. And so that's the advice I would give to young folks or older folks, more experienced folks that are just joining the secondary industry for the first time now or, or next month. Wonderful. And to be completely unfair, and I'll come back to you in 10 years time and we can compare notes over this answer. Uh, but to get your crystal ball out, how large do you expect the secondaries market will be in 10 years time? I typically don't make predictions because they're always wrong. But I'll give you order of magnitude. When you look at the LP-led and GP-led side of the secondaries market, and you look at the growth potential and the trajectory, I would say in 10 years, the secondaries market, both LP and GP-led, will be at least $400 billion to 500 billion per year. Thanks to Verdon Perry for appearing on this edition of Second Thoughts and thank you for tuning in. If you have any interesting tips for the podcast, drop me a line via email or LinkedIn. In the meantime, find all of your secondaries market news on secondariesinvestor.com. And to hear more episodes of Spotlight and our next breakdown of developments in the secondaries market, Find us wherever you listen to podcasts or at any of PEI Group's various titles online. I'm Madeline Farman. Thanks for listening.